0: prayer works. And uh, I know the Lord Jesus believed that, believes that's the case. In fact, he made this rather dramatic statement about prayer. He said, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Now that's quite a statement, and uh, it surely could be taken in the wrong way. We're going to discuss it tonight, but before we do, Let me fill you in on the setting in which the Lord made that dramatic statement. It uh, had been his last supper. It was a Passover. He celebrated the meal with his close associates, disciples. They came to be known as apostles. And then during the meal, he announced terrible news. One of them would be his betrayer. We know him to be Judas. And then Judas went out and left him. And then the Lord Jesus changed the venue and led his followers away from the upper room. And they went uh, in an easterly direction. They were going down in elevation until they came to a valley called the Kidron Valley. Uh, They crossed it and they went to the famous Mount of Olives there to find a special place known as the Garden of of Gethsemane to which the Lord had frequently uh, visited in order to spend private time in prayer uh, with the Father. That was the situation, and as they were making their way down to the Garden of Gethsemane, the Lord's time being short, he was making good use of it, redeeming the time and teaching them all the way. In fact, he spoke to them about his soon departure, which upset them greatly. He offered words of encouragement and exhortation. He told them, it's good for me that I depart from you, and your business is to bear fruit. Concentrate on bearing fruit, said he, not just fruit. He told them, I want you to bear more fruit and much fruit. Keep bearing fruit of a spiritual kind. That's what he said. It's likely, in fact, as he walked down the hill uh, on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane that he used some of the agriculture in the area to speak to them about a grapevine, during which time he said, that's me, I'm the vine, you're the branches, apart from me you can do nothing. And so there was this conversation. And in the course of walking to the Garden of Gethsemane, that's the context in which the Lord made this rather Unusual statement, he said, Ask anything you wish, and it will be done for you. Those are the exact words of Jesus on this particular occasion. And if you look to them based upon what they seem to mean on the surface, it's basically a blank check kind of a thing that the Lord is leaving them and us with. Ask whatever you wish, fill in the amount. And uh, just by virtue of the asking, there is a guarantee, said the Lord, it will be done for you. And so some people take that verse to mean just what is illustrated by this graphic. They would see God to be the divine check issuer, leaving it blank for his followers to fill in the amount. They would see prayer to be like this, just state it, and God then is obligated Based upon the statement he himself made to give you what you have asked for. But, folks, there's a condition attached to that statement. And you can see the condition. It's in verse 7 of John chapter 15. So that's where we are now. We're in John chapter 15. We're making progress. Not too fast, but we're getting there. John chapter 15, verse 7. Notice the condition. For uh, what the Lord said. If you abide, if that's the condition, if you abide in me, if you live in me, if you're connected to me as the vine and the branches, if you abide in me, and not only that, and my words are embraced by you, internalized by you, uh, valued by you, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, well then, if you meet that condition, then. Ask whatever you wish, and it shall be done for you. So, uh, if the if requirement is met, then what you ask for will be granted. Why? If we are abiding in Christ, if we're meeting that condition, and if his words have found their home in our lives, if his words are abiding in us, then we will not be prone to ask for anything the Lord already desires to give us. We will not ask for things that are frivolous or that are contrary to his character or will. If the abiding condition is met, then the one who is abiding in Christ will uh, automatically make requests of God that are in keeping with the character of God. And if we make requests in keeping with the character and will of God, then It shall be done for you. Abiding means holding on to God's hand as if he's a loving father, getting to know what he desires and values, and making petitions of him, a trusted loving father, in keeping with his character. And if we're hanging on to Jesus this way, if we're abiding in the atmosphere of his presence, if we're drawing upon him and his word, then the condition is met, and then you could ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. However, uh, the it shall be done for you does not mean in your time or in your way. For instance, the Apostle Paul, you remember him? He surely, based upon the letters, the epistles he wrote, met the abiding condition. Still, the Apostle Paul, on one occasion, beseeched the Lord more than once about something he referred to as a thorn in his flesh. We don't know exactly what it is. Some people say some kind of affliction in his sight. Maybe. If For our purposes now, it doesn't matter. Something greatly disturbed Paul, and he beseeched the Lord on more than one occasion. He met the abiding condition, and after uttering the prayer, he received God's response. And here is the answer. It's simple. My grace is sufficient, is what God said to him. Namely, in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, Paul said, And he, God, has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. Why? For power is perfected in weakness. And so though Paul met the abiding condition, he did not specifically get what he asked for because God answers prayers not specifically on our schedule or the way we would like them to be answered. The Father gives us what he knows we need, not necessarily what we want. And I want to point out another kind of a limitation on what otherwise seems in this verse to be a blank check. It is this. Please remember the general context of what we're reading. In the prior verses, the theme was bearing fruit for Christ. Remember, he's departing. In just a few hours, he'll suffer an excruciating death. He'll be impaled on a cross. His followers are grieving this reality. They can't really apprehend it. And he essentially says to them, stop it already. Be about my business. Bear fruit. That's the context. That's the context of this whole text. And in this context, the Lord now says what he does in verse 7, which is before us. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. The idea is this, I want you to bear fruit. The Father is glorified when you keep bearing fruit, when you bear much spiritual fruit. But you cannot do this in your own strength. Therefore, whatever you ask with regard to your fruitfulness will be given to you. This is not a blank check. It's not, oh, God, I want the winning lottery ticket or I want a trouble-free life. That's not what this is about. The context is, I want you to bear fruit. You cannot do it without asking for my help. And whatever you ask in this regard will be given to you. That's the context. It's spiritual fruit that has been the previous context. We spoke about this last time. It's the spiritual fruit mentioned in Galatians chapter 5. Things like love and joy and peace and patience. And God says, these are the things I want to see born and uh, revealed in your lives. And you can't do this. You can't summon up joy and patience and peace and all the rest. You can't do this in your own strength. You know that. But ask whatever you wish in this regard and it will be done for you. That's the context. And so, the context here is bearing fruit for God's glory. Therefore, the phrase, ask whatever you wish, is not a blanket promise applying to everything you ask for. Some have come to be sorely disappointed even angry at God for not answering prayer. Oh, no, no, he does. But you can't see prayer to be a, a, an open, kind of a blank check kind of a thing. He wants us to bear spiritual fruit for his glory, and in that regard, you just ask. You say, oh, God, I don't have self-control. Oh, God, I don't feel the joy of my salvation. Oh, God, I'm not at peace. Oh, God, would you help me? Ask whatever you wish in this regard, yes, and it shall be done for you. That's the that's the context. And so, you see, we have a good example here about how you can take a verse of Scripture out of context and really, really be in error. So, someone can say to you, it says right here, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. And you could take off with that very distorted theology based upon a singular verse taken out of context. Now, here I'll offend some of you, I think. I don't mean to do it, but I I enjoy doing it. I I must tell you, I'm a New Yorker. That's what we do. So, I must tell you, you know those promise books, Bible promise books? I don't like them. Uh, It's not the worst thing in the world. Don't misunderstand. But here's why I don't like them. Every one of them takes the promises of the Bible out of the context in which they're found. And you, a hurting person, looking for the encouragement of Scripture, looking for a promise of God, oftentimes they're topically arranged. Do you want a promise on material wealth? Do you want a promise on health? You know, so you look it up. And your intentions are good. And the authors have gone on this, you know, shopping spree in Scripture to find all the promises of the Bible. But do you know not every promise of the Bible applies to every person in every day? You have to kind of look at the context. This is a key example. I'll bet you this made it in everyone's promise books. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And people are going to lay claim to this again as if it's a blank check. But the whole context reveals to us, oh, no, no, no. It's about asking for the wherewithal to bear pleasing spiritual fruit for Almighty God. It's not a blank check. So could I encourage you to do something Uh, This will really offend you. Stop being such a lazy reader. Why don't you read the Bible? It takes more work, for sure. And why don't you leave those promise books alone? You should glean from Scripture the promises of God. You should take encouragement and comfort from them. But you have a better chance of handling them in context when you're reading them in the context of Scripture. Good night, we have 66 books of inspired and inerrant scripture. We have the audacity to call it the Word of God. Sometimes we even stand up when it's read, as we should, and then we leave it behind and buy all these books about the Bible. Why don't you read the Bible? It seems to me the Bible is the means by which God called all created things into existence. The Bible has transformative power. Why are you buying these collections of verses and books and all this? I mean, folks, don't rob yourself of the... Listen, I had a morning quiet time today. I don't need to tell you about it. But I, I simply read today where I left off yesterday. So I, I'm in the context. And uh, what I read was so meaningful and so helpful to me. Uh, the Lord himself might as well have been in the room. It was just that real an experience. I was just so certain that God gave me something that was helpful to me in light of a present situation. I don't want to get a promise book. And... <sighs> Folks, can I really offend you? Jesus Calling. That book has taken the Christian world by storm. Millions of copies have been sold. And the author writes it in the first person as if it's Jesus calling, as if it's Jesus speaking. And I say to you, my dear one, my loved one, who I embrace and will never let go. And I'm not saying the things in it are bad things. It's more subtle than that. It's more dangerous because the author has the audacity to be speaking as if it's Jesus speaking. Listen, the only place where we can find the inscripturated words of Jesus with confidence is in the Bible we say, we value, and would die for. And then we leave it behind for goofball books like Jesus is calling. Now, I know I'm offending you because a bunch of you have it. You give it away as Christmas gifts. I I got one, and I'm going to burn it here pretty soon have you become so fed up and bored with scripture that you have to buy books like that listen when jesus really does call through the living and active word of god it affects you it uh, it it causes you to delight to have such joy to be so reminded of his nearness and love and and presence I don't want someone faking it. Now, I'll tell you the danger of a book like that. You say, oh, I know it's not really Jesus calling. It's just, you know, kind of a literary device. It's poetic license. What about a new believer? How is the new believer going to extinguish that extra biblical book in which Jesus is not calling from the real book in which he is? I would encourage you. Why are you devoting yourself to devotional books more than you are devoting yourself to the inscripturated, inspired, and Bible? We Baptists are ferociously committed to defending the inerrancy of Scripture, the Scripture we don't read. Shame on us. Shame on us. This is the living and active Word of God. The Bible, not all this other stuff, now, I debated whether I would mention as specifically the things I did, and I decided I'm 69 years old. What do I got to lose? <laughs> <clears throat> Folks, be careful. The scriptures are so rich, so wonderful, so inspired. They are God-breathed. When you exhaust the scriptures, then you can read de- You know what a devotional book is? Someone else's firsthand experience in the Word of God, which you're getting now secondhand. Do you mind me saying, I don't want a secondhand experience with Christ? I want it firsthand. And by the way, that's what he offered to me in dying on the cross a personal relationship. Well, why do you want to make it impersonal by reading somebody else's uh, devotional guide? They're wonderful ones. Please don't misunderstand. And I'm not saying you should not read them. I'm just saying spend most of your time directly in the Bible. When God speaks to you, you can write your own devotional journal. Why should I read somebody else? I'm not interested in reading your devotional journal. I want to write my own. Don't you want that? Well, uh, then you have to do the work of sitting at the Lord's feet and listening, and straining sometimes, and sometimes things are confusing, and you have to ask questions of the text, and wait for answers, and all the rest. Sometimes I wonder if God is testing us to see if we're willing to hang in there regularly meeting with him, or do we want him to just come cheaply? Work at it, it seems to me, sitting at the Lord's feet, and you come away with pearls and jewels of a first-hand kind that will change your life forever. Anyway, this verse is a graphic illustration of how someone could say to you, but it says in the Bible, yes, Satan quotes scripture too. Out of context, inappropriately, and in a distorted way. You know people say you can prove anything you want to from the Bible. They're right! If you want to mishandle it, you could. But if you want to accurately handle it, and if you want to value it and prize it, no, you can't come up with all these far-fetched, crazy, extreme interpretations of uh, of wrenched-out-of-context passages of Scripture like this particular one. Okay, so I think I'm okay now. Thank you for this therapy session my dog is pleased because I won't go home and hit her now because I got this all out. You know what the Lord is talking about? Abiding in Christ, living in Christ. And a follower of Jesus who is abiding in Christ and in his word, um, that abiding disciple is preoccupied in prayer not in getting what he or she wants, but in uh, desiring and asking for what God wants. you find this happening over time. And when um, your uh, prayer requests are uh, consistent with the character of the God you are addressing, you will have what you ask. And he will use your very words as the vehicle and the medium by which he delivers the goods. But your words have to be be, uh, in harmony with what's on his heart. And we can't know that unless we abide in him and spend more and more time seated at his feet. And so what God wants for us is to bear much fruit. And so we read this in verse 8. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so proved to be my disciples. And so the proof of discipleship is not church membership, and it is not singing songs. Uh, the proof of discipleship is fruit-bearing, spiritual fruit-bearing. And as we mentioned before, we're not talking about your fruit, or my fruit. We're talking about God's fruit produced in us. We're talking about the fruit of the very Spirit of God in us. And when we bear fruit, according to this text, we glorify God. And when we bear fruit, we provide ourselves and onlookers with evidence of the fact that we are a real disciple of Jesus Christ. If you meet someone who claims to be a Christian, but you're not entirely certain, the onus of responsibility is on that Christian. Why is there no evidence of fruit? Fullness in that professing Christian's life. According to this verse, the evidence of discipleship is to be fruitful. And so when you see God at work in you and you realize those results are not due to you on your efforts, but they're due to God's presence in your heart, well, then you realize I truly am a disciple of Jesus Christ. And think about this, if we could step back from the technicalities of this for a second. Don't you find it overwhelming that almighty transcendent deity wishes to be glorified in us? (laughs) That is overwhelming. Most people of notoriety want nothing to do with you. They want to hurt your feelings, but you don't mean that much to most people. I remember years ago, remember when the Rocky movies were out? Um, I think the first Rocky movie Rocky's opponent was a guy named Clubber. Do you remember that? Is it just me making this up? Uh, Clubber is something or other. I don't remember what his name was. I saw him in Chicago. It was Mr. Uh, what's his name? Mr. T wore all the jewelry. It was Mr. T. I saw Mr. T on the streets of Chicago. I was handing out tracks. I was just handing out tracks. And there's Mr. T. I ran over to him. Mr. T. Mr. T. I was going to put this in his hand, you know, tell him what a great fan I am of this. Mr. T just walked on by like I was nobody. Just some guy trying to put a piece of paper in his hand. He just, Mr. T, I haven't gotten over it to this very day. But Almighty God wishes to establish his presence in me and be glorified through me. Wow, Mr. T. This is an amazing reality. What an evidence of the love of God for us. In fact, the Lord says this in verse 9, Just as the Father has loved me. Don't miss this. Just as the Father has loved me. Jesus is speaking. You know of the eternal love between Father and Son. And the Lord is invoking this to make a point. Just as the Father has loved me. Here's the point. I have also loved you. Whoa. And now he says, abide in my love. That's what he says. This is a marvelous declaration of Christ's love. Can I offer you this, and I offer it to myself? Let's enjoy it. Enjoy being loved by the very Son of God. That's what he says right there. In in, in fact, this is an amazing thing. Christ loves us. This is what the text says. Just as the Father has loved him. Is there a person here who would have the audacity to doubt the Father's love for the Son? You would say, no, of course. now the Father has loved him from eternity past and forever. The Father loves him unconditionally. The Father loves him perfectly. You, you would all vote, yes, yes, yes. I'm persuaded of the Father's love for the Son. And the Lord uses that and says, yeah, in the same way, I love you. Folks, it's a package deal. If you accept the first, you must accept the second. The second is hard. We can buy the first. The father loves the son. But that the son loves us in the same way, that's really rough. Why? Because we're pretty unlovely. But that, that doesn't matter. Because the love of the son for us is not contingent on the attractive, attractiveness of the object of his love. We are not attractive. He loves us with a grace and mercy that has nothing to do with the attractiveness or absence thereof of the object of his love. And he says, just to help you, I love you in the same way and with the same measure with which the Father loves me. That's what he says. And he offers now this great challenge based upon what he said. He says, abide in my Love. That's what he says in John 15, verse 9. Live in the atmosphere of the love of God. That's a big battle for us because we're so easily enveloped by the atmosphere of inferiority and awareness of our flaws and guilt and shame and key rejection messages which will not let us go. And what the Lord Jesus is saying is, you know how the Father loves me. That's how I love you. Now live in it. Move out of the atmosphere of, uh, uh, of, of uh, self-condemnation and all the rest of that. Move, move out of the atmosphere of rejection messages from others and move into the abide in, dwell in the atmosphere of my love. That's what he's saying. That's what he says right there. Do you love Jesus? Anybody here love Jesus? Yeah, me too. But we don't love him nearly as much as he loves us. It's just not going to happen. And so he said, don't worry about it. Go on continuing abiding in my love. That's what he says. And I think he's telling us if we do this, we will do better at bearing more fruit. We just thrive. Children thrive in an atmosphere of affirmation and love they just grow. They they realize their potential. And the Lord Jesus said, that's the atmosphere in which I want you to live in. And in that atmosphere, breathe it in, breathe in and enjoy the atmosphere of my love. In that atmosphere, you're prone to bear more fruit. You know John three sixteen. I I memorized it one time. For God so loved, what? Yeah, the world. He really does. He has a he has a heartfelt desire for the world to be redeemed, and um, yet his love, though he loves the world in general sense, yet his love for those who are his far surpasses that. It's not a generic kind of love. It's the it's the kind of love you have for for your child or for your grandchild. I remember when my boys, and now my grandchildren, when they play athletic events, and they're on a court or on a field and many other players are there. You don't wish for the other players to do poorly, but it's like your eyes are only focused (laughs) on the one who has a connection with you. It's like nobody else. You don't want bad things to happen to the others. You have a kind of a generic interest in their well-being, but you have a focused, specific and precise a a heartfelt desire for the well-being of that one or that two who has your last name. And this is the way in which the Lord Jesus loves us. And so, the Lord furthermore says to those who are abiding in him, this is what he says, verse 10, if you keep my commandments, uh, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And so, Loving him and obeying him, they, they overlap, they're, they're enmeshed, they go together. And so the very one who is telling us to obey has himself obeyed and thus ob- abides in the Father's love. If we are his disciples, um, do you know he loves us even when we disobey? But when we disobey, we don't feel it. That's what it is. When we disobey, we don't forfeit the love of God, but we don't experience it quite as much. Uh, All the riches which are ours in Christ Jesus, love and joy and peace and so on, are oftentimes diminished by disobedience in our lives. Uh, They're not removed. Uh, God has not uh, uh, gone back on His Word. Uh, No, Uh, it's just that the Experience of the fruit of a, a close communion with him is forfeited. you know how that is, perhaps even in your own family when there's friction between family members, you remain family members, but the uh, quality of communion has really really been compromised, and so too with with God now here here the Lord is not talking about the obedience of slaves that 's obligatory that 's compulsory. This is a reference to the obedience of children who want to do that which is pleasing to a loving parent you know it's wise to do things God's way I've I've come to that conclusion of late more than ever it's wise to do things God's way you know how I know that I get a chance to see the outcome of the lives of those who are not doing things God's way Their lives are in shambles. Even the rich and famous, we know about their lives because theirs are in public view, and we read about them, watch it on TV. I don't criticize. I just say, oh, my goodness, I'm so grateful that I've been redeemed and now have the capacity, the desire to do things your way, to live life skillfully. I'm just seeing an increasing number of people. By the way, that's what the word for wisdom in the Bible means, to live life with skill. I'm just seeing an increasing number of people who are just not living life skillfully. The decisions, the relationships, the choices are engendering such sometimes irreversible consequences. I'm no better than them, nor are you. But when we do things God's way, we save ourselves such needless agony and sometimes irreversible bad consequences. And so the Lord Jesus says this now in our last verse, verse 11. He said, These things I've spoken to you. And now he tells us why. That my joy, his joy, may be in you. Isn't this wonderful? What a beneficent Savior to wish this for us. Everything I've said to you on his way to the cross, he said, This is my purpose. That my joy, the quality of joy I have in me, I want that to be in you. And not only that, says he, that your joy may be made full. I find this remarkable. In just a few hours, he'll die. It won't be quick. He'll be brutalized and humiliated before even the cross. He'll be whipped with horrible whips with stones and bones and who knows what on it, and it'll just rip his back open, and then he'll be stripped naked, publicly humiliated and impaled on a cross, and you think about those uh, nails going through places where there are uh, sensory nerves and all the rest, and then there he'll be for hours, hours, and... uh, bleeding and uh, suffocating. He'll, he'll be asphyxiated. He knows all this, see? He knows this. He knew it was his destiny to die on the cross for you, and he saw this coming, and that's why it makes what he says to me all the more amazing. Here he's speaking of joy. Is that what you do when you're about to die an excruciating death at the hands of a, um, an out of control crowd uh, calling for you to suffer and die and heaping, you know, putting a crown of thorns on you. King of the Savior of the Jews, save yourself. You know, all this. What is joy? How does joy enter into the picture? Well, the writer of Hebrews maybe gives us some insight. Hebrews twelve two, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and Perfector of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus had joy. It's remarkable to me because the kind of joy he had existed, persisted, in spite of the circumstances he had. What kind of joy is it? That is there in spite of circumstances. Hmm. And what's stunning is, whatever kind of joy it is, that's the joy he wishes for us. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Can you see it? My joy, your joy. I want them to correspond. How could this Jesus so near the cross have joy? Well, then I suddenly realized, and perhaps you before I got this, There's a big difference between joy and happiness, isn't there? Someone has well said happiness depends on what happens. But joy is this thing that persists and exists in spite of what is happening. Joy is not happiness. Joy comes from being in a right, meaningful, abiding relationship with Almighty God. I memorized this verse the other day. Um, You are my God, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the Horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I counted in one verse eight times the personal pronoun, my. That's joy. I have a a my God relationship with almighty God, the king above all kings. And things can happen that are intensely unwanted things. They can invade and disrupt in a moment health issues, other issues family issues. But that little two-letter word repeated eight times in Psalm 18, verse 2, cannot be erased, but you're still my God, my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my shield, my stronghold, and the horn of my salvation. That's joy. Joy comes from the kind of perspective Expressed by the writer of Psalm 75. You know this. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And on earth I desire nothing but you. I'm not there yet. I want to be there. Oh, I want good things to come my way and the way of people around me who I care for. But when they don't, can I find joy? In having Jesus. Whom have I in heaven but thee? Well, we'll all be there, but nothing, it won't matter. <laughs> we'll be in the literal presence of Jesus. And besides thee, the psalmist, I, des- I desire nothing on earth. Joy comes from abiding in Christ and having Christ abide in you. And the world cannot offer this joy. Uh, The world can only offer the kind of joy that comes when things are going well. It has nothing more to offer, but Jesus has something way beyond, a quality of life, a joy, indescribable and inexplicable, which you cannot forfeit. It cannot be taken from you and Inflation can't get to it, and it doesn't matter what political party is in office, and even if you lost your job, and even if you got a terrible medical diagnosis. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And besides thee, I desire nothing on earth. I think James got this. James, the writer of that letter. He said, consider it all joy. What's he talking about? Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let this endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. Joy persists in spite of circumstances because we know when we have sufficiently abided in Christ... We're not hurting for no good reason. There's a good reason behind it. Our Father has allowed this for a reason. It is for our perfection and completion so that one day we will lack for nothing. Uh, Folks, the joy that there is in abiding in Christ is unlike anything the world can offer. However, the joy of our salvation Has an ebb and flow. Perhaps you've noticed it. I didn't say salvation does. I'm not one of those who thinks you can forfeit it. That's based on a misunderstanding of who has provided it. Salvation has been provided freely by God's grace. You can't forfeit what you didn't contribute to. Uh, So I don't believe salvation has an ebb and flow. In other words, I'm saved today, I'm unsaved tomorrow. Yet the joy of salvation seems to. In fact, I notice that the joy of salvation uh, is minimized oftentimes through the aging process. As you get older, I don't know, things happen. Faculties are not what they used to be. You can't see as good as you, you used to. Your mind doesn't, is not as sharp as it, uh, you know, all these things. Uh, kids move away. You wonder about your role and purpose at this point in your life. You, you know, all these things. And I noticed aging can sometimes minimize the joy of our salvation. And also, um, illness can really do it. Illness can do it and doubt, of course, can do it, and sin, sin by a Christian can surely diminish the joy of our salvation. Perhaps that's your situation right now, saved to the uttermost and convinced of it, but the experience, the joy of it perhaps is not yours, even as you sit here tonight. You're a believer, you're a believer, but you don't have the joy of your your salvation. You once did, but don't now. Don't be ashamed of that. You're not alone. Even one as great as David struggled with it. In fact, that's why he prayed what he did in Psalm 51 verse 12. He said to God, restore to me, not my salvation. He didn't say that. He said, restore to me the joy of your salvation. So as we close, I'm going to give you a chance to be prayed for. Uh, could you stand to your feet, if you don't mind, before a pastor comes? Can you stand to your feet, just where you are, but don't leave just yet. Um, And uh, uh, for those of you who fit the description I just sort of hastily gave, I'm I'm saved, I'm a believer, Uh, but the joy of my salvation, well... It's vanished from me. I could sure use some prayer. If that's you, would you sit? That's all. I won't ask you to come forward. Just sit where you are. I promise we won't do anything to hurt or embarrass you. If you're struggling over this, I'm saved. But the joy of my salvation, for one reason or the other, is not mine. Could you just sit just for the next moment, and we're going to pray for you. Good. Thank you for being honest. Thank you. You're in good company. It's all of us from time to time. And if you're experiencing the joy of your salvation tonight, that's really, really good because I want you to pray for those who are not. So where you are as I lead us, would you bow your head, close your eyes, and imagine those in our wonderful family here who do not have the blessing you have at present. You're joyous in Christ Jesus. Others are not. They're in Christ Jesus, but not joyous for whatever reason known to God and that person. Would you just pray for those people? Let me lead us. Oh, God in heaven. This is important, what we're doing now. We've worshipped you in song. We've had sweet fellowship with one another. We've opened your word. And now the great privilege you've given us. Now we pray, and now we pray on behalf of those, our family members who are struggling. There's no shame in the struggle. It happens, and I'm so glad that they happen to be in this auditorium tonight. So, as we bow before you, O God, we do so to beseech you to bring about a change, interrupt the pattern, the downward spiral in the lives of those who are struggling. There was a time when they experienced the joy of their salvation. Would you restore it, oh God? Is this something they need to confess? Would you put your finger on it and move them to do so? Is it the throes of life, the aging process, illness, family dysfunction, financial challenge? Whatever it is, oh God, those things can surely interfere with our joy. I pray, oh God, you would do a mighty work of renewing the joy of their salvation, even tonight, reminding them that in spite of what happens, you'll never leave them or forsake them, And though they feel down and Out, you say, as the Father has loved you, you love them. I pray, O God, they would be enveloped by your love tonight in a supernatural way, the kind of way only you can author. So I pray these who have come, in fact, maybe have dragged themselves in tonight, would leave with a bit more of a bounce in their step, knowing Jesus is mine my God, my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my stronghold, I pray, O oh God, the joy of that salvation would be restored. And this we pray, in Jesus' name, amen, amen.